0: Well, we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, as uh, Steve Steve said. And you remember that the sermon as a whole is about kingdom righteousness. Uh, The idea is, as Jesus has called disciples, he's called them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. As people repent, they turn allegiance from sin and self, and they entrust themselves to Christ, uh, to him as king, and they're following him, well, that has implications for their lives and the lives that they live. And that's really uh, at least as a you can think really of Matthew five through seven. I think we've said this a couple times as uh, at least the first primer on discipleship. What does it look like to follow Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus as king? And we've talked about that. We've talked about uh, how to follow and uh, pursue righteousness, the righteousness that's produced by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's given in the new covenant. Uh, that means there's going to be righteous fruit in the disciples' life. And Jesus describes that. He describes how to pursue the law, even the Old Testament law, uh, from the heart. Not that the same external actions are done, but the, but how do you look at under the hood of those commands and see what God is desiring? Really, if you remember, just sort of bring your attention, because it's going to come up today, uh, chapter 5, verse 48, the heart of really all of Obeying God's commands is this. You therefore must be perfect or blameless as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's heart, God's desires, God's standards, the things that are intrinsic to Himself as God, His eternal moral character, as a disciple, we are emulating that character. So Jesus did that with the Old Testament law, and then He brought us in in chapter six to the idea of righteous habits. Uh, the things that you do on day in and day out in your life that Jesus expects his disciples to do, how do you do those things in a way that seeks not man's reward, but God's reward? The father's reward, that father-son language. When we have repented and entrusted ourselves to Christ, we now have an adopted father-child relationship. And so how do we seek our father's reward rather than the reward of other people which will pass away? And so we've Talked about charitable giving. How do you give charitably in a way that seeks the Father's reward and not, not man's? And then, in the same way, uh, how you pray. Uh, not to seek notice for yourself as if you were praying for the benefit of other people. No, you're, you're appealing to God in heaven, your Father who gives answer. And then, last week, we started into uh, more instruction. Jesus takes some time to, to give some more instruction on prayer. And first, in 7 through 80, he contrasts, he not only had talked about, don't be like the play actors, don't be like the hypocrites, but also don't be like the foreigners, those who multiply their words, uh, thinking that they're going to manipulate God to give them what they want, to give them their needs. And so... So Jesus says, don't be like that, but instead, starting in verse 9, he gives us a positive instruction and pattern for how we pray. And really, that's the main idea we started in last week, and we'll continue with this week, is this, pattern your prayers by submitting your needs under the priority of the Father's plan. Pattern your prayers by submitting your needs under the priority of the Father's plan. Uh, Jesus isn't denying that there are needs, that you have needs. But even what we saw last week, and even how he structures the Lord's Prayer, or you could call it the the disciples' prayer, since he's expecting the disciples to pray it, the priority, the greatest need, as it were, is the Father's plan. And so last week, uh, we said, we went through these, our Father in heaven, uh, where we address God as Father. We have a covenant relationship with Him, not only individually, but in community with one another. We're not the ours, the uses that are in this prayer, they they speak to not just the individual disciples' relationship with God, but the whole community being together. In other words, what we would say is the local church, right? We these are these are petitions on not just on behalf of the individual, but the local church, because we all, as adopted sons and daughters of the Father, appeal to him. And then the first petition, let your name be treated as holy. Let it be treated as sacred. It's not being treated sacred in the world, but it is being treated sacred in heaven. Remember we said that as in heaven, also upon earth applies to the first three petitions. And that's happening in heaven, and we want it to happen on earth. God's kingdom hasn't come yet, not in its fullest sense. We are an embassy as a local church of that future kingdom, but that future kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom, the return to Eden and better under Christ as king is to be manifested in the future. God reigns in heaven, but he hasn't manifested that reign to the fullest extent on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray for that. We also pray for the Father's will, uh, what He wants, His His desire for righteousness, His commands, what He has revealed in Scripture. We pray that His will would happen, as in heaven, also upon earth. Angels do His bidding in heaven instantly. There is no there is no pause between God's command and the act, the action of that command in heaven. Well, that certainly isn't the case on earth, and we desire it to be so. And we said, really, those first three petitions, they describe the future. They, they, they describe the future kingdom, what Jesus has been talking about. And the amazing reality is we, we petition these things. God has promised that he will bring those things about. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It will happen. But he gives us the privilege as sons and daughters to be brought in, into petitioning for that to come. And he even uses our prayers as means for himself to be moved to bring those about in reality. What a privilege. What an amazing, amazing privilege. And there's implications for each of those things. Uh, we, uh, not only are they future, but they are things that we do now. We, we, we seek in our individual lives as disciples, but also Corporately, we want to keep God's name sacred. We want to honor his name in all that we do. We desire for more kingdom citizens to be affirmed by the local embassy of that kingdom, the local church, to be brought into the life of the local church, to know this great God and king. And we desire as individual disciples and corporately as a group of disciples, as the local church, to do what God wants us to do. So there are both future and present realities to those petitions. But here's the thing, all of those first three petitions, they're speaking about the Father's plan in the world. This is where God is going in the world. He has promised to go this direction. He involves us in it, and those are our greatest needs and desires as disciples. Those are to be our highest priorities in life, even above our, what we'll see today, our legitimate needs. You see, the kingdom, if you understand the kingdom and where God is going in history, that should be your greatest need above every other need. And so that's why we pray for it. And that's why we prioritize it as we pray. But Jesus, like we've said, it's not that Jesus isn't aware that we have needs. It's just the fact that we shouldn't worry about those needs. Because even like he said back in verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, But he wants our needs and, and what we see as needs to be shaped, to be controlled, to be fashioned and shaped by the priority of the Father's plan. So last week we talked about praying for the priority of the Father's plan in verses 9 through 10. And today we spend the rest of our time praying for needs submitted under the Father's plan. Praying for needs submitted under the Father's plan. And the fourth petition starts with something. Very, very tangible, very human. It says this Give us this day our daily bread. It's actually interesting, the adjective daily, it's like, oh, that's a simple word. Well, actually, it's a really hard word to translate um, from the original because there's only, in this, case, uh, in this example, in the Lord's Prayer and also the, uh, the Lord's Prayers that's recorded in Luke, that's the only two times this word occurs in the New Testament and in all greek literature outside of the new testament so we don't have a ton to go on but i think the best option for this word to see it this is and you need to get this because it helps us understand what exactly are we praying for it's the idea of the the word daily is trying to communicate this this idea pertaining to the immediately coming day so there's a sense of uh, the day that's coming ahead uh, there's, there's, there's necessary bread for that. Uh, I need bread to live, right? The, the idea was that a person would live, you know, a, a loaf of bread was about uh, what you would need for a, a, a day, and also that a, a person would be paid on a day-by-day basis. A laborer, a common day laborer, they'd be paid a wage on a day-by-day basis. But this idea of daily, it's the immediately coming day. There's a sense of immediacy to it. So you can think about praying this in the morning. You're thinking about the day right in front of you. Uh, oh, I need bread for that day. I need physical sustenance to live, physical sustaining uh, grace from the Father to live for that day, physical sustenance. But if you prayed it at night, right, it would just be for the next day. The, immediately, the immediate day right in front of you is the idea. And the disciple is to pray in that way. We need physical sustenance. We need physical uh, provision. We need to live, right? If we're going to seek first the kingdom and the priority of the Father's plan, well, there's a reality in which we need food to go that direction. But here's the thing. The Father, the the prayer is a day-by-day prayer. The Father provides one step at a time. The Father provides one step at a time, one day at a time. That's, that's the de- this kind of dependence that a disciple has on the Father. And this prayer isn't, isn't designed in any way to exclude the idea of working, working uh, to get the wage that you need to go out and buy the supplies for bread. But there's an acknowledgement that even in that very human task of going to work, uh, of getting paid a, a wage, and then going and buying bread, God's behind it all. God is behind it all. And so we pray. We pray that, Father, would you give us what we need, the daily things that we need today, right in front of us, would you give us those things? And in our culture, right, we, it, we don't face the same realities as uh, that, Gentile, that, that uh, Galilean culture where Jesus is preaching, where we get our way just for that day and no more, and we're, we're not sure where the next day's meal is going to come from. We really, not, not many of us face that reality. But even so, Jesus would have us ask this even when the, the means seems secure, Because what's the principle? The principle is God provides. God is the one who's providing those things regardless. So even when it seems like we got plenty of food in the refrigerator, we got plenty of money in the bank, whatever it looks like, we still pray this prayer. We say, Father, give me what I need for today. And that can branch out into multiple things, not just food and and physical uh, needs, but we could think about clothing. We could think about shelter. We could think about these things that we do need to live. And yet, even when they seem secure, we pray to the Father, please give us these things. And then when we, we receive them that day, we give thanks. In a sense, that's what we can be praying even as we have our meals. So we, we, we kind of, the mealtime prayer can become perfunctory. I acknowledge that, that that can become that way in my own heart. And yet, when we sit down, we recognize God gave us this food, and we are thankful. You provided this sustenance, even above sustenance, for this day. He, the Father is good and generous. So we could ask this, are you dependent on the Father to give what is needed each day even from when your own perspective it seems secure? Are you dependent on the Father each day for what you need for the day, even when it seems secure? And then when you receive it, do you give thanks for that provision to the Father? See, this, this is shaped. If you're going to seek first the kingdom, if you're going to orient your whole life as a disciple and you ought to, that's what Jesus is expecting around the kingdom. Well, there's a reality that you need physical sustaining grace, and so the disciple prays, submitting that need under the reality of the priority of the Father's plan. But next, we get the fifth petition, uh, the fifth petition regarding forgiveness, and this is probably where we're going to spend the most amount of time today. And actually, we're going to spend time on forgiveness next week. We're going to take an aside because forgiveness is so important. Jesus makes a big deal about it here. Uh, not only in verse 12, but in the, the connection with verse 12 and verses 14 and 15, we need to understand forgiveness as disciples. So let's jump into it today, but we're going to talk about that more in a general sense uh, next week. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Actually, it's not uh, in the English there, it says have forgiven. Uh, literally, it's uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgave our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgave our debtors. Now, you're like, well, what's this debt? Are we talking about financial debt? Well, no, because this verse is clearly connected to verses 14 and 15. And really, what verse, you see that little four at the beginning of verse 14? What that's giving is a reason, a support for what Jesus is saying in verse 12. For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it's clear that this, uh, this language of debt, it's just uh, a metaphor for sins, for trespasses, for offenses. Now, there's, what you have to see here is that a couple things. One, Jesus is, just as we pray each day for daily bread, bread for the immediately coming day, this petition is just as daily, right? Even that that petition that signals that we pray each day for our daily bread, that kind of makes this prayer prayed uh, at least once a day, right? That's what Jesus is expecting, in a sense, right? To pray in this sort of pattern, we're not saying wrote wrote, uh, wrote, uh, a formula, because he said in verse 9, pray like this, this is a pattern But even so, in verse 12, the prayer for forgiveness should be a daily prayer. It should be a daily prayer. And not only that, it is very, very clear. uh, Very, very clear that Jesus connects not only our uh, petitioning the Father, the forgiveness of our debts, our trespasses, our sins against him, with our forgiveness of others. Look at that little word, as. The Lord as in verse 12, there's a correspondence, there's a comparison between how God forgives us and we forgive, forgive others. It's even more clear in verses 14 and 15, just to read it again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, if you're thinking, you should have two questions in your mind right now two questions. One, why do disciples need to keep asking God for forgiveness if they have already been forgiven in Christ? Isn't that a good question? If you think about uh, the Jesus message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So the disciples do repent. They've entrusted themselves to Christ. They believe that in Christ they are forgiven And that's the testimony of the rest of the New Testament. Actually, just to see that in one particular place, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. And just to hear this language, and this isn't the only place where you hear this language. You hear it um, multiple places in the New Testament. But in Colossians 2, 12... well, let's go ahead and, uh, oh, sorry, 2.13, 2.13, and listen to this language. Uh, Paul is speaking to those who are in Christ, the Colossian believers, and he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, all our trespasses. That's as complete language as you get, right? So if you come to Christ, then you are forgiven all your trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt. So we get that debt language again. By that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So now if we go back to what's going on in Matthew 6, that raises a question. It's like Jesus is assuming his disciples will ask the Father for forgiveness every single day. And you have a question like, well, wait a minute. Why do disciples need to keep asking God for forgiveness if they already have been forgiven in Christ? Isn't that an interesting question and one we should answer and need to answer to understand what's going on here? But there's a second question. There's a second question and they're interrelated. They're interrelated. So the second question is this, how does our forgiveness of others relate to God's forgiveness of us? Right? Uh, That is very, very clear that that's the case in Matthew 6, verses 12 and verses 14 through 15. But how does that work? How does our forgiveness of others relate to God's forgiveness of us? And we're going to take these questions in order. We're actually going to spend the most amount of time on the first one because it really helps us answer the second. So first, this question, why do disciples need to keep asking God for forgiveness if they've already been forgiven in Christ? Now, where we have to start, I'm going to lay out some principles, some, uh, some facts uh, about forgiveness from the scriptures, and then we're going to bring them all together. So I'm going to give you a list of uh, things you need to know about forgiveness, and then we're going to pull them all together to make sense of what Jesus is doing here. So there's several kind of facts we need to gather, observations we need to make as we go along. First... As we look at the scriptures, we say this, forgiveness presumes a real offense, a real sin, a real debt in terms of relationship has been done, has been incurred. So forgiveness presumes that it's a real offense. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is God's, in terms of, we're talking about uh, an individual and in God. So an individual really sins against God. A, a real offense has been done against God in his holy name. And the individual asks God for forgiveness. What are they asking for? Well, we would say this, forgiveness is God's committed promise to not count sin against the offender because of atonement. Forgiveness is God's committed promise to not count sin against the offender because of the atonement. The the offense can't be undone. The offense can't be undone. It happened. So what what is forgiveness doing then? It's not not undoing the offense. It's, It's God saying, yes, you committed that offense, But I am not going to, I promise not to count that offense against you in your debit column, so to speak, to use the debt analogy. I'm not going to put that offense in your debit column. And then biblically, we would say the reason he can do that is because of atonement. Let me take you back to Leviticus, eminently practical book of the Bible. I'm serious. Gives us theology about sin, about forgiveness, about atonement, that is still helps us understand it, even as new covenant believers. So Leviticus 4, I want you to see this. Very interesting. Leviticus 4, 27. And what I want you to see is how forgiveness operates. How, when an individual is, is offended God, how do you, how do you clear that? Leviticus 4.27 says this, "...if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed." And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burn in the place of the burn offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burn offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be Forgiven. So you see this whole process culminating in forgiveness. The forgiveness came because of atonement. There was a substitute, right? This is the idea of laying hands on a sacrifice. You're identifying with that sacrifice. And in God's, at least in God's picture, what he's picturing here is the transfer of your debts. Uh, to the the animal, your your debts are being transferred to the animal, and its blemish, uh, blemishlessness its purity is being transferred to you now, obviously, this is a picture that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, but nonetheless, it shows us that forg- God forg- offers forgiveness because of atonement what 's also interesting here is uh, because what forgiveness is is a promise by God to the individual. The individual, uh, forgiveness can't be had until the individual recognizes their guilt. Did you notice that, right? This was an unintentional sin that happened. They weren't aware of it to begin with, but then they, upon further reflection, or someone brings it up to them, they're like, oh, you're right, that was a sin. And then as soon as the individual becomes aware of that sin, then he can go to God, he or she can go to God, and... Ask for forgiveness. And together with this, you could, well, let's go to another Old Testament text that helps us understand what it means for an individual to ask for forgiveness. Go to Psalm 32, talking about David. And he committed iniquity, he committed sin. And he speaks more about this reality of asking forgiveness from God. So, Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1, a maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's atonement language, to cover over sin. Blessed is the man against whom the, uh, Yahweh counts no iniquity. There's our counting language, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I, I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And then skip down to verse 11 and see how the person who has been forgiven is considered. Paul picks up on this in Romans 4. Uh, verse 11 says this be glad in yahweh and rejoice O righteous and shout for joy all you upright of heart you see what's going on here is a couple other things we can point out forgiveness assumes that you're confessing the sin to god and what are you asking from god you're really asking from god a word a word uh, this is what we call performative speech a word which would amount to i forgive you i forgive you right And here's the thing. Forgiveness doesn't benefit God. Forgiveness doesn't benefit God. Forgiveness benefits the offender. You can see it here in Psalm 32. David is under heavy pressure from God. He's being disciplined by God. And he feels that until he confesses and repents of his sin and asks for forgiveness, and then God forgives him. His sin is no longer counted against him, but instead he is counted as righteous. That's the sequence. So the person becomes aware of their sin against God. They confess. Confession means that you acknowledge it was wrong. Repentance is different. Repentance and confession are not the same thing. Repentance means uh, you're, you're intending to do differently in the future, and you're planning on that so that you can obey God. You have that attitude of repentance, that desire for repentance, but then you ask God for forgiveness and he grants it to you. But based on what we saw in Leviticus 4, that forgiveness is given, is spoken to you on the basis of sacrifice, on the basis of atonement. So here's another reality as we kind of pull these pieces together. Here's another thing you need to understand and see, and you saw it actually in Psalm 32, Forgiveness is strongly connected with justification, being declared righteous by God. And another concept that it's strongly connected with is God's mercy. So we got all these concepts. We got forgiveness. We got being declared righteous, aka justification. And we've got the reception of God's mercy. All of these converge. They're all different ways of talking about the same thing. Even in Matthew 18:33, where you've got the parable of the unforgiving servant, and you remember that, this one guy, he owes a ton of debt, again, we have the debt metaphor, to this king, and the, he comes to the king and he says, I'll pay you everything, you know, he's sobbing on the floor or whatever, and the king's like, alright, I forgive you. And then he finds a friend and uh, someone who owes him a little bit, just a tiny bit in comparison to what he owed the king, and he won't forgive him. And then the king calls him back and says, I'm retracting my forgiveness because you didn't show mercy as I showed you mercy, right? So we've got this idea that forgiveness is God's promising. I'm not going to count that sin against you, but instead, actually, I'm going to count you as righteous. And that all comes under the umbrella of God's mercy. Okay, now here's where we pull some of these ideas together. So this is very important. I want you to listen very, very carefully to what I'm about to say. The full, final, formal, public pronouncement by God, literally where we hear God's word saying, I forgive you, so the full, final, formal, public pronouncement by God of forgiveness or justification is in the future. It's in the future. The full, final, formal, public pronouncement by God of forgiveness of justification is in the future. Now, how do I draw that conclusion? Well, And turn back to Matthew 5, back to the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon actually helps us in what I just said, right? The the idea of God's mercy is strongly connected with uh, the idea of forgiveness, with the idea of justification. Look at Matthew 5, 7. Remember the Beatitudes, how they're structured. The Beatitudes say, happy flourishing uh, are those who behave in this way right now, Because in the future, in the state of the kingdom, such and such will happen to them. So look at verse 7 in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When are they going to receive mercy? They're going to receive mercy at the judgment, at the judgment. So uh, now, let me be clear here. Mercy and being merciful doesn't only include forgiveness; it's broader than that. But it certainly does include it. It's, mercy is a, a, a God's mercy is a broader idea than forgiveness, but it certainly includes the idea of forgiveness. And so you're like, well, wait, how do, we, how do we reconcile this? Because we did read earlier, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, that says, if I'm in Christ, all of my sins have been forgiven and he, uh, he, uh, when I come to Christ. Well, here's the weird thing. If you think about things from God's perspective, so we got things from God's perspective and we got things from man's perspective, our perspective, okay? So from God's perspective, God has always known all of the sins we will ever commit. Isn't that true? God is omniscient. He knows all things. In fact, he's decreed all that comes to pass. So he knows ahead of time, all of the sins over my lifetime that I will commit against him. That's why it's possible that Jesus died before I was even born. And on that cross, my sins that hadn't been committed yet were counted to Christ even before I committed them. And that atonement was made, that payment, the atonement piece. We've already talked about that, how that's connected with forgiveness. The, the, the bill has been paid already. But think about this. When I become a Christian, I, 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 conf- uh, I realize I'm a sinner. And I say, I have, will experience God's wrath unless I entrust myself to Christ. I repent of my sins. I entrust myself to Christ. I'm brought into union with Christ. He's my covenant head. He is my master. He is my king. Uh, that benefit of his atonement is then counted to me. But here's the thing one of the things that's necessary for God to speak a word of forgiveness is for me to recognize my sin and to ask him for forgiveness. Now at conversion, what sins do I know about? I only know about all my sins for my life up to that point, don't I? I don't know about the ones I'm going to commit in the future, although God does. So this is, this is where the mind bending gets in, right? So you got to think very carefully along with me with this. So up to my point of conversion, I'm asking God for forgiveness of all of my past sins. And he does because of Christ and because of his atonement. But I can't ask him for forgiveness of sins I haven't committed yet, even though those sins have already been paid for at the cross. So as I walk through my disciples' life... Uh, I sin on a daily basis. Jesus basically says so in the Lord's prayer. You need to ask for forgiveness on a daily basis. Why? Because you sin against God on a daily basis. So now think back to Leviticus four, unintentional sins, things like this. When does the person go through the forgiveness process? When they become aware of their sin, either from themselves upon reflection or someone else telling them you sinned against God. So now I'm walking through life as a disciple, and I commit I commit a real offense against God. As a disciple, I commit a real offense in sinning against God. What do I do? Well, what I do is I confess that sin to God. I entrust myself again to the payment of Christ through the atonement for myself. And I receive, in principle, God's word of forgiveness. God didn't literally speak to me and say, you were forgiven, did he? That awaits the end of time. But what's going on here is that because I know the judge, I have an intimate relationship with the judge who's going to pronounce me righteous, pronounce me forgiven, pronounce His mercy over me at the judgment seat. Because I have a relationship with the judge, the judge essentially hands me a slip of paper and says, here's what your verdict is going to be on that future day. It's the future verdict of forgiveness and justification given to me in the present. That's how this works. And so this is why Jesus says, that's our answer to our first question. When we we sin, it's a real sin, it's a real offense. How do we receive God's word of forgiveness? I go again to the gospel. I go back to the gospel and I say, I am a sinner. I deserve your wrath. I have offended you and I uh, need your forgiveness. And God God gives me in the scriptures, the words, he pronounces a word in principle to me in the scriptures that says, you are forgiven because of my son. So you might ask, is it necessary? Is it necessary for a disciple to ask for forgiveness for their sins? Yes. Yes, it is, right? Why? Why would we say that? Well, think about the attitude that if, let's suppose you say, well, Jesus already forgave me all my sins. Uh, Yeah, I commit sins on a day-to-day basis, but it really doesn't matter. They're all forgiven in Jesus. Think of the flippancy of such an attitude. Remember, all of this in the Sermon on the Mount is couched in the language of a father and a son. And if you know the father and you know what the offense of your sin is against God, you can't be flippant about it. You need, you recognize this is a real offense. It needs to be dealt with. And so I come to him on a day-to-day basis to clear accounts, so to speak, on the basis and the basis alone of Jesus' atonement in my place. And then we enjoy the relationship. You can't enjoy the relationship with the Father if you know there's a break, there's a problem, there's an offense, and it needs to be dealt with. Well, the Father has given the means through the scriptures, through the gospel, to speak to us across time and say, my future verdict, in my... if you're in Christ, if you've entrusted yourself to Christ, you know the judge, because Christ is the judge at the end of history, And Jesus, through the scriptures, through the gospel, pronounces and says, my verdict in the future is going to be forgiven. It's done. It's done. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Does that mean we need to catch every little sin that we do on a day-to-day basis? No, because there's a reality in which there's, uh, I won't be aware of all that I do against God on a day-to-day basis. Listen to Psalm 19 in this regard. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But It's the same question that the psalmist that David is asking in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, uh, verses 12 to 13, who can discern his errors? And that's the question, right? Like, do I have to discern all of my errors and confess them to God? No, who can discern his errors? But here's the, the request, declare me innocent, a.k.a forgiveness, right? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And so we even apply that to the Lord's prayer. Uh, We might pray it like this, Father, I know that there are things in the last day that were were not pleasing to you, and I don't even know what they are, but you do. Would you forgive me for those things? And I am trusting in the grace of Christ, that Christ is the sufficient atonement so that you can make that promise to me that those are not counted against you. Instead, you are counted righteous in Christ. So you might ask the question, and here's the thing, we, when you receive that word of forgiveness, then you shouldn't, you should be happy. You should be happy. Because that's what Psalm 32 talks about. Once David is forgiven, and he's received that word, there's nothing counted against that person. You no longer do penance. You no longer. Uh, yes, there are still things that you need to make right in your life, and and all of that. But the uh, the, the Father accepts you on the basis of the Son, and you enjoy, you rejoice, you uh, are glad in that forgiveness. You don't keep. Uh, in this kind of pattern of trying to make yourself feel bad enough for God to accept you, that's not going to work. It's only Christ's sacrifice that allows you to receive that forgiveness and enjoy that the father's smile, so to speak, the father's acceptance. So that's our first question we've answered, and we spent a lot of time there, but it helps us actually answer the second. So our first question was, why do disciples need to keep asking God for forgiveness if they have already been forgiven in Christ? Because you're essentially clearing accounts with God on the basis of Christ and on the basis of Christ alone, and he is giving you the future verdict today. Second, our second question was this, how does our forgiveness of others relate to God's forgiveness of us? How does our forgiveness of others relate to God's forgiveness of us? Well, let's back up a minute. What is the whole Sermon of the Mount has been talking about? Uh, What's true righteousness based in? True righteousness is based in the eternal moral character of God. And so if you want to be truly righteous as a disciple, you're seeking to mimic the Father's character. Chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well uh God is a forgiving God is he not So if you claim that I have received God's verdict of forgiveness from the future today because of Christ in the gospel but actually I'm not going to extend the same forgiveness to those around me you are not a believer You can't be If you truly understand What you have been forgiven, and this is Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, you are displaying the worst kind of fruit. Remember the tree analogy, right? If we are in Christ, he makes us a new tree. He gives us a new nature. And then what results from a good tree is good fruit. What results from a bad tree is bad fruit. So if you're not willing to forgive others, you may may look at the scriptures all you want and say, yes, God has forgiven me in the gospel because of Christ. And yet if you're unwilling to forgive others, you should not expect his verdict of forgiveness from the future. It's a fruit issue. You have awful fruit if you are not forgiving others, if you are not willing to forgive others, to make them that promise if they're repentant of forgiving them, of not charging their offenses against them. And that kind of answers our question. And that makes sense if we go back. Let's just read verse 12 and verses 14 through 15 again and forgive us our debts as we also forgave our debtors. So there's a correspondence. If you're forgiving others, it shows that you're truly in Christ. That's fruit that's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in correspondence with that, forgive us at that future day. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses today, your heavenly Father will also forgive you in the future. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The forgiveness of others is fruit you're bearing today, which displays you're a genuine disciple, and so you receive that final verdict at the judgment. So, by way of application, are you keeping short accounts with God? Are you seeing your sin on a day to day basis? mourning over it, and then not staying there. You can't get stuck and just mourning, right? Like, I need to feel bad enough until God forgives me. No, that's Christ's atonement alone is the sufficient payment price for you to enjoy God's forgiveness. So don't get stuck in the mourning phase where it's like, I got to feel bad enough before I go to God. No, see your sin, mourn over it, and then receive the pronouncement of the forgiveness through the gospel all the while looking forward to the future forgiveness. Are you doing that as you pray? And then, of course, secondly, are you forgiving others? Are you forgiving others? If you're not, is a grave question mark over your salvation. And this issue of forgiveness is central to what Jesus is saying here. And, we're, we, and we need to unpack this more. So we're actually going to, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, we're going to take next week and we're going to unpack forgiveness a little bit more because it's so central to what Jesus is saying and so central to live, living the Christian life that we need to understand that. So we're going to build on what we've talked about next week. But finally, let's look at the sixth petition. Verse Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think uh, it's uh, probably best to take when he's talking about from evil, it's actually, it has an article in front of it, which means he's talking about uh, probably a person. And I think he's talking about Satan. Um, So uh, just to recognize that. And so lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now you think about that for a minute and you're like, is it? What does that mean for God to lead us into temptation or to allow us to be led into temptation, however you want to say that? And wait, Satan's involved in all this? How does that work? Well, thankfully, we have a great backdrop to explain this first to us in chapter four. You want to know what it looks like to be led into temptation and to escape Satan? Chapter four, right? Look at verse one in chapter four. This is amazing language. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. That's what that looks like, right? So he asked the question, can God lead us or allow us to be led into temptation? Well, he did with his son in verse, chapter four, verse one. He did not tempt his son, but he allowed him into the circumstances that would allow him to be tested. And you remember when we talked about this passage, we talked about temptation like this. It's like testing. It's like taking a block of metal and putting it in the oven and seeing if it's going to melt. When it melts, you've sinned, right? That's succumbing to temptation. Now the devil, from the devil's perspective, he's trying to get Jesus to melt, although Jesus is unmeltable, however you say that, right? Um, uh, He's unmeltable, right? So he's feeling the full fury of of Satan trying to get him to sin and it doesn't work. But from the father's perspective, that same testing allowed, uh, fed into the, 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 the demonstration of his son as tested metal, right? As the champion. So from God's perspective, he was doing one thing. From Satan's perspective, he's trying to do another thing. And it's the same with believers. Can God lead believers into a period and a place of, test, uh, of testing, of temptation? Yes, he does not tempt but he allows them to be tested. And so why would we pray this then? If we know that God sometimes does bring us into situations in which we're tempted by Satan, not by him to do wrong. Well, we recognize that unlike uh, unlike Jesus, the champion who is unmeltable, we are frail. We are weak. I can't I can't resist the full fury of the devil's temptations. So there's two ways to be rescued out of it. One would be to pray, Father, please don't even bring me into a situation where I would melt. Just rescue me from that. For the sake of your name, don't don't let me come into a situation like that. I want to stay as far away from that as possible. But granted what we just said, right? He sometimes does bring us into those situations for his own purposes and glory. So the second part, but deliver us from the evil one. So if I'm brought in, if I'm brought into temptation, don't let me fail. And the promise of scripture is, is that there is no temptation among men such that we do have to fail. First Corinthians 10, 13 but we pray it. We are dependent. Prayer expresses dependence. So when you're tempted, right, this is obviously a daily prayer. Before I go through the day and I experience all the things I'm going to experience, don't even bring me into a situation that's going to bring about temptation. But if I am in that situation, please protect me from the evil one. Please protect me from Satan. And in the midst of one of those temptations, you go to your knees as quickly as you can say, Father, unless you show up here, I am going to succumb. Help me. Jesus is the champion. He knows what I need to resist this. Chapter four, help me. Do you recognize your frailty and your need for the Father's protection from temptation? Are you praying to be kept from it by the power of by his power for his name's sake now as we end before we pray uh, you might recognize if you have an nasb or an nkjv or just a kjv for yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever amen and you're probably going to see some brackets around that uh, it's probably in our oldest manuscripts this is the god's providence that he's given us so many thousands of greek manuscripts and we can compare and contrast we can say this one's older this one's better and the oldest and best manuscripts don't actually have that in the prayer. So it's probably not original. But it's definitely a true sentiment to Scripture. In fact, you can see that kind of language at the end of 1 Chronicles. very, very similar. Um, So just to point that out as we end today. But in all of this, what we need to see as we work through all the petitions is this, to pattern your prayers by submitting your needs under the priority of the Father's plan. You have physical needs, you have spiritual needs. That's really what the last three petitions are about. But those aren't even your greatest need. Your greatest need is to see where it is God going in history pursuing that kingdom, and then all of the other needs come under that. Well, as we did last week, let's pray and seek to work our way through these just to kind of test drive it, so to speak. And then we will enter a time of communion, so be preparing our hearts for that as well. Father in heaven, you are our Father of not just of me, but of all of your people who are in this room together, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the new covenant that you've brought us into. Father, let your name be treated as sacred, as holy, even now as we think about partaking in communion. We are really saying, God's name applies to me in Christ. We pray that we would honor your name, that we would treat it as sacred on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, we wait for the future. We know it's coming. We long for it we pray as in the interim that you would sweep more kingdom citizens into that kingdom to bring them here to partake with us of communion, of proclaiming the gospel until you do come. Lord, we pray that your will would be done as individuals and as a collective church, as your local embassy, that we would do what you want. It's being done in heaven. Help us to do that here on earth. And we know that in the future, your will will be done perfectly. And we long for that and pray that that would happen. Lord, we pray today for daily bread, the bread that we need for the immediately coming day, the things that we need for this immediately coming day, Lord, that you would provide them for us. Even for this coming week, that you would give us the physical things that we need and all other needs as well, Lord God. You know what those are. You know what those are and we depend upon you and we acknowledge that you provide our needs abundantly, Beyond what we could ask or think, we pray for any who are suffering or uh, don't know um, what uh, d- don't know where their needs are going to be met from, Lord, we would be hear of those and be able to come alongside that fellow brother or sister in Christ. Lord we pray that you would forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, Lord God, you have forgiven us so much, you've pronounced that forgiveness through the gospel and will pronounce it to us in person fully and finally, at the end of time, at the judgment seat. Lord, help us to be a forgiving people and to do that and practice forgiveness rightly. Lord, if there are any, any um, broken relationships in this church between individuals, I pray that people would make it right today, that there would be forgiveness and reconciliation. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from temptation that you would deliver us from the evil one as we go this week we know we will encounter many things we will encounter temptations to use our words wrongly we will have temptations to look at things we ought not to we will have temptation to uh, to be proud uh, we will have so many there are so many ways in which we are frail and weak but we ask that you would not bring us into those and that even if by your sovereign and fatherly care you do allow us to be brought into those for testing that you would allow us to escape from the snares of the evil one. You would protect us from his power, and that we would be able to honor your name as Christians, as those in Christ. We thank you for this prayer. Help our daily needs to be shaped by your plan and where you're going in history and in the world. We long for you, and we long for where you're going. Lord, please bless this time now as we get to partake in the sign of the new covenant together, the Lord's Supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.